Genesis 38, starting in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on her garments of her widowhood. And then down to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this past weekend over Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving has been fun for me. Thanksgiving has always been one of my favorite holidays. It's great food. Uh, it's great football, especially when the Cowboys are 10-1. and That's pretty awesome. And uh, But this Thanksgiving in particular was pretty cool, I know, for a lot of you. And it wasn't because of food. It wasn't because of football. It was because of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> yeah, I know that was just an unvarnished attempt to make women happy. I mean, not, usually it's football, but now Gilmore Girls. A new Gilmore Girls was released. I haven't watched it, although I did watch a lot of the old series with Marianne. And I got to say, I like Gilmore Girls. I don't care what you think about that. I liked it. And um, one of the things I like about Gilmore Girls is that the star of the show is a a woman named Lorelai. And she's from sort of a blue blood family in New England. And she has a child out of wedlock when she's 16 years old and is raising her, Rory, as a single mom. And one of the main sort of tensions throughout the whole series is how her family is somewhat embarrassed by her and by the life that she's followed and by sort of her values and her just the way she views the world is very different from the family she grew up in. You know, you would expect Lorelai's parents, these wealthy um, very important, uh, prominent New England family to, as, they, as it were, just sort of forget about her when they're talking about their family. 
That's one of the most important parts of Gilmore Girls as a series, and it helps drive the narrative thread forward. And I think that's actually relevant because that's also what we see when we look at the story of Scripture. Let me ask you this. What would you imagine the family of origin for Jesus to be like? What kind of a family does Jesus come from? You know, the Savior of the universe, we might expect, would come from a healthy family. We would expect him to have a well-adjusted family history. The New Testament doesn't begin with a long time ago in a galaxy far away. It doesn't begin with once upon a time. The New Testament in Matthew 1 begins with a genealogy. It's Jesus' genealogy. That was the way that ancient Jewish writers introduced new characters in the story they were telling. And in the midst of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, where he lists Jesus' descendant, or excuse me, he lists Jesus' ancestors, Matthew chooses to include some names that are not just surprising, they are scandalous. If Matthew were going to give a genealogy that made Jesus look credible, that made Jesus look good, then he would have left some of these names out, it seems, and put other names in. At least that's what I would think. So what is going on here? Matthew's design in Matthew 1 helps us understand what Jesus is all about, actually. And it helps us understand what Christmas is all about. And so what we're going to do in the next five weeks is look at five different characters in the genealogy of Jesus, five ancestors of Jesus from Matthew 1. And it just so happens that we're going to look at the five women that are mentioned in Matthew 1 in Jesus' genealogy. That's why we're calling this series the Mothers of Jesus. And the women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, she doesn't even get a name, just the wife of Uriah, and Mary. And the fact that these women are included in the genealogy of the Messiah is really incredible. I mean, the fact that women are included at all in an ancient Jewish genealogy is incredible. But if Matthew is going to include women, you would think he would pick like Sarah or Rachel, a famous Jewish matriarch that is going to make the people of Israel proud. But no, he doesn't pick any of them. He could have. This is a selective genealogy, and the people Matthew picks, especially the women that he picks, in one way or another, are all surrounded by scandal. They're all surrounded by messiness. Their stories tell a story that we would probably not want to be known if it were our own family history. And so we're going to look at the story of these women. And we're going to see each week that the mothers of Jesus give us a spectacular portrait of grace. Of scandalous grace, you might even say. And now I know you've got to be thinking, all right, Luke, you're crazy. (laughs) What sort of crazy idea have you had to talk about a genealogy during Christmas? Seriously, you know? Um, And I, I understand that. And I want you to keep you, I want to keep you on your toes for one, but I also just want you to maybe ask yourself this Christmas season, how does the Holy Spirit want me to see the Christmas stories in fresh ways this year? What is God wanting to show me about himself through these people's stories? So let's open our hearts and see what the Spirit might do among us. So first we're going to look at The first woman mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, Tamar. Now, the story that Karen read for us, thank you for doing that, Karen, is particularly scandalous. 
I got to say, it's not even rated PG-13. The story is rated R. Um, it's filled with intrigue and drama, and it's all a part of the family tree of Jesus Christ himself. So let me attempt to work through the, the story with you in three parts. Okay, here are the three parts. First, Tamar's situation. Second, Tamar's scandal. And third, Tamar's salvation. Okay, her situation, her scandal, and her salvation. Okay, so first, Tamar's situation. I need to set the stage for you. Only part of that chapter was read, but we're picking up here in Genesis in the middle of the story of Joseph. In chapter 37, Joseph has just been sold into slavery, a very famous story, by his own brothers because they were jealous of him. And then we get this story in Genesis 38 about Tamar and Judah. Judah is one of Joseph's older brothers. And it seems to be just a random interruption in the narrative of Genesis. What in the world is the author Moses doing throwing this story in here? Here's what Moses is doing. He's asking the question, what kind of a person would sell his own brother into slavery? And the answer is the kind of guy that you see in Genesis 38, Judah. This is the kind of guy that would sell his own brother into slavery. Uh, So it seems to be a random interruption, but the author is telling this story intentionally at this point. And this is the kind of guy I want you to see who would do something like sell his own brother. And amazingly, Judah is a part of the chosen family of God. Judah is Abraham's great-grandson. He is Isaac's grandson, and he is Jacob's son. So here's the story and the situation that Tamar finds herself in. Judah has three sons. The oldest son is named Er, E-R. You pregnant women might want to consider that one for your own child one day. We read about him in verse 3 of chapter 38. And in verse 6, Er marries Tamar, who we read about in the story. But Er is a bad guy. Er, Er's. That's what the Hebrew narrative is getting at. It's a pun. At least it's intended to be a pun. And God, in an act of justice, puts him to death in verse 7. And so... According to ancient custom, Judah, the father of Er, gives his second son, a guy named Onan, to the widowed Tamar. That was the law that required Judah to provide for his widowed daughter-in-law. So Tamar marries Onan, but the same thing happens. Onan, bad dude. So Onan is put to death by God as well, verse 10. And so now Judah has lost two of his three sons, and both of them just happen to have been married to Tamar. And now Judah is obligated to give his third son to Tamar as a husband as well. And this guy's name is Shelah. But Judah refuses. Instead, he tells Tamar in verse 11, Remain a widow in your dad's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Now, it's important to see here that Tamar is the responsibility of Judah. In the ancient world, The head of a household was responsible for his children and for his children's families. And so Tamar should be living with Judah. Judah should be caring for her and meeting her needs. But what we see here is sort of a don't call me, I'll call you situation. You know, Tamar says, you know what? Just wait until Sheila or Judah says this to Tamar. Just wait until Sheila grows up and then I promise I'll call you. But Judah has no intention of calling Tamar. He wants to cast her out of his family for good. Now, the story wants us to sympathize at this point with Tamar. That's really important. And here's why. Tamar is made vulnerable here. Tamar here is a victim of injustice by Judah. 
Judah's responsible for her, and he casts her aside. By the way, just like he had cast his brother, Joseph, aside without a second thought in the prior chapter. So Tamar is a victim without question. She's a widow two times over. She's had two husbands die. So this is certainly going to create sort of a black cloud that follows Tamar wherever she goes. People are probably superstitious at this, at this point. They're thinking whoever marries her ends up dead. You know, So she's probably unmarriable at this point. And Judah doesn't want to give Shelah to her, and he has no intention of ever doing so. So Judah functionally is abandoning Tara, or Tamar. excuse me. And further, Tamar has no children, which basically means, as we saw with Sarah, by the way, in our studies of Abraham, that Tamar is functionally useless in this harsh, ancient culture. So that is Tamar's situation. Tamar is vulnerable. Tamar has been exposed. Now, pause right there and think with me. This story alone tells us something about Jesus' family. Going way back in history. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Judah's descendants become by far the most powerful of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah has religious privilege. Judah is a part of the chosen elect line of God. Judah is an ancestor of the Messiah himself. But here we find Judah as a slave trader. Moreover, he sells his brother into slavery. Here Judah is presented as callous, as self-righteous as superstitious. Judah is terribly flawed as an individual. So what does that mean? Listen, it means, among other things, that God did not send his son Jesus into a family that put a silver spoon into his mouth. God did not put Jesus into a family that was worthy to receive him and raise him. Uh, hidden little secret, by the way, no such family exists. Christmas tells us that Jesus entered into the middle of all of our mess. Jesus dives into our dirtiness. Do you know that? Christmas is not only a sweet little story about baby Jesus with halos above his head as he lies in that manger. Christmas is God entering into the full depths of human brokenness. And that is part of the reason why Matthew chooses to list Tamar, of all people, in Jesus' own kingly genealogy. So Jesus does not come for those who have it all together because no one has it all together. No, the gospel tells us that Jesus enters into the fray of our brokenness and begins to mend and to heal. And we see that even in his family tree. So we see Tamar's situation. But Tamar is no dummy. And so secondly, we see Tamar's scandal. She knows what Judah is doing to her. She sees Judah's deception, and so she decides to act. And what Tamar does is flank Judah with counter-deception, really. She outsmarts him, and she adds to this already very scandalous situation. Now, Tamar knows she's being played here. <laughs> so she plays Judah, okay? 
She dresses, and let's just be honest, here's what the text says, okay? She dresses like a prostitute, verse 14. She seduces Judah on a business trip, and Judah impregnates her, verse 18. So Tamar outscandalizes Judah, which is hard to do, given what we just saw about Judah. She thinks, basically, if I can't get a son from Judah's children, I'll get a son from Judah. Um, and Tamar capitalizes in a shrewd way on Judah's corrupt sort of base instincts. I mean, think about it. How did Tamar know if she stands right here on the road that Judah's going to pass by on his way to the sheep shearing uh, retreat or the sheep shearing conference and um, stop and ask her, you know, what guys in those sorts of situations might at times ask? Well, he knows, she knows obviously because Judah has developed some, of a, some bit of a reputation. I mean, Tamar's lived with the guy. She knows what he's like. She preys on his baser instincts. She knows he is going to fall for this. Even the interaction that they have is very brusque. It's very direct. I mean, this is bad stuff. It's bad stuff. And listen, it's intended to be shocking. Tamar gets the better of Judah here. And the Bible doesn't defend her action. I just said she's a victim. She is a victim. But this is not something that the Bible defends. But it does lay it all out there in the open. By the way, part of what's going on here is that the author is setting up a contrast for how Joseph handles temptation in the very next chapter with Potiphar's wife. But that's a different sermon for a different day. For now, Scripture is honest about what these people are like. Listen, if you're newer to Christianity, or if you haven't read the Bible much, you need to, you need to maybe understand this. The Bible is not prudish. Um, the Bible does not pull punches. The Bible gives us, very often, the brutal, gory details about what people can do and what people can be like. And again, let's think about this in terms of the bigger picture. Can you believe that Matthew would include this lady? And by implication, this whole story when he's introducing Jesus? Just think about this with me, okay? Imagine you've got a daughter in college. Some of you don't have to imagine this. You do. And she comes home for the Thanksgiving holidays, and she brings a boy home with her. And you spend the weekend with the boy and your daughter, and you think, okay, this looks like a pretty serious deal. And this boy seems to be a very nice boy. I like him a lot. And so let's say on Sunday, you as the mom pull out the baby photos and start going through family picture albums or maybe just looking on your iPad. I guess that's what we do now instead of actually getting physical books. Um, and you start showing you know, the family to this boy. And you start sort of you know, airing some of the family's dirty laundry right there. First time you've met this guy. Here's Uncle Joe. He's in prison for... Uh, trafficking cocaine across the border. And then you go and say, well, here's great-grandfather Charlie. He was a slave owner in the South and blah, blah, blah. You know, you start just kind of laying it all out there and, and you can watch the whole situation begin to deteriorate as this nice young boy who's come to see his girlfriend's family for the Thanksgiving holiday begins to get this wide and crazy and fearful look in his eye thinking, do I really want to marry into this? That's kind of what's going on here. Matthew's laying it all out there in his introduction of who Jesus is. He says, this is Jesus's family. And so reading these stories, like Judah and Tamar's story, are a way in which each one of us is being asked to look at ourselves. That's why Matthew includes the story. You know, um, 
The Holy Spirit right now does not want you to hear these stories and evaluate the characters in them in some sort of moral vacuum. This is in the Bible, and we're reading it this morning because the Holy Spirit wants us to hear and read this story and then evaluate ourselves. Or, rather than evaluate the story, the Spirit wants the story to evaluate us. And he wants us to conclude that, you know what, we can be like this. This is not just a story about those people. This is a story about us. This is what people are really like. This is what... This is what we are really like. We love to repay injustice with more injustice. Just like Tamar does here to Judah. We love to think that we can't fall, but we in reality are easily tempted and seduced. Just like Judah. We prey on one another's weaknesses to acquire advantages over them, just like we read about here. We are prone to these same things. Listen, Scripture is all about exposing our brokenness and our deep flaws. It's all about helping us to see that we need a Savior. And guess what? You can never really get Christmas. I mean, you might have warm, fuzzy feelings and enjoy looking at Christmas lights with your family and open a lot of nice presents, but you don't really get Christmas until you understand your need. You don't really understand why Jesus had to come as the light of the world, as the New Testament calls him, until you get that you're living in the darkness. Jesus did not come for them. Jesus came for us. Jesus did not come to rescue people as messed up and broken as Judah and Tamar. Jesus came to rescue people who are as messed up and broken as you and I. And if you can't really see that through the story, then you haven't yet begun to understand the meaning, the real meaning of what God is doing in sending his son. Thankfully, God does not enter into our darkness and leave us there. And we can see that even hinted at in this story. So real quick, let's look at how it ends. We've seen Tamar's situation. We've seen the scandal that she causes. And now let's look at Tamar's and really Judah's salvation. So verse 24. Judah discovers that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. After about three months, she's beginning to show. It's obvious. And so people come and say, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. She's pregnant by immorality. And in the Hebrew, which is the original language, Judah then says two words. Take, burn. Two words. And um, this is really hard. I mean, even for a very brutal ancient world, this is harsh. A harsh response. He wants her burned. I mean, that is an excessively torturous punishment, even in a world like this. So Judah, who by the way, has shown no signs of sorrow, as far as we can tell, over losing his first two sons, can easily, and without even thinking twice, give Tamar up to death by burning. But it's at this moment that the story hits an amazing crescendo. I love this part. Uh, Tamar had taken a few of Judah's things. We read about it. His signet and his cord and his staff as a pledge of his payment for her services in verse 17. And these were things, by the way, that would have clearly identified Judah. This is like if you leave your wallet and your cell phone somewhere, right? So Tamar's got Judah's wallet and cell phone. And as she's being dragged to the pyre to be burned, you can imagine Judah 
with his arms crossed, watching her cross the town square as the dust is kicking up behind her as they're dragging her through the dirt. And she manages to look at Judah and make eye contact with him. And she says, please identify whose these are. And she throws out his keys and his cell phone and his wallet. Verse 25. And Judah sees them, and then the pieces all fall together. And in this moment, Judah has an awakening. If you want to use New Testament language, you might even say that in this moment, Judah has a conversion experience. He says, verse 26, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. Now listen, up to this point, Judah has been completely oblivious to his own issues, right? To his own sin, to his own need. He doesn't think twice about burning his daughter-in-law at the stake for committing a sin that he himself happens to be guilty of as well. He cannot see himself. Judah is in total denial, you see. He's in denial about his own two sons' culpability and wickedness. He is in denial about his own role in this grisly situation. He is in denial about everything in his life. And so what he does instead is project his situation back onto Tamar. And in an effort to justify himself, he wants to shift blame from he to her. But God uses this situation and this story to expose Judah to what he is really like. This is a moment of awakening for him. He finally, listen, Judah finally has to face the shock of his own sin. He has to stare down who he really is. He sees himself finally as he needs to. And listen, that is the beginning of spiritual transformation for any person. We are all, to some degree or another, pretenders. To some degree or another, all of us want to shift blame and deny what we can really be like at times. To some degree or another, depending on the situation or what the circumstance warrants, we think, we will throw someone else under the bus so that it might prevent us from facing up to reality. If we're going to experience spiritual awakening, then we've got to come to terms with the facts. And this is what we all must have in our lives if we're ever going to really appreciate and embrace Jesus Christ as he offers himself to us in the gospel. So let me ask you, do you see yourself rightly? Have you been shocked by what you were capable of? Listen, you cannot grasp the grace of Jesus for you until you see the depth of your own inner corruption and your own tendencies to deny that reality. Judah sees it here. And amazingly, Judah's transformation immediately passes forward to Tamar. He says, let her go. She's more righteous than I am. He did not know her again, we read. And so Tamar goes back to live in Judah's home. And she has twin boys. That's what we read there at the end of the story. And as is often the case in Genesis, the younger receives priority. He pushes his way through and is born first. His name is Perez, which means breakthrough. This is a breakthrough. 
So Perez's birth is emblematic of Judah and Tamar's experience. What they both experience here is a spiritual breakthrough. There's a spiritual breakthrough of God's grace into their dark and cold reality. There's a new and vivid sense of their own blindness and depravity and neediness and therefore a new and vivid sense of the deep love of God for them. And at the end of Genesis, we see a transformed Judah. A few chapters later, when his father Jacob is dying and he blesses each of his 12 children, he lays his scepter on Judah's head and he says to Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes to whom he belongs. So Judah, broken and guilty and scandal-ridden Judah, here acts justly towards Tamar and really later becomes sort of the poster boy for justice in the tribes of Israel. And really, Judah is here prefiguring his greatest descendant, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who will bring all things to rights, who will bring shalom and healing. Jesus is the greater, perfect Judah. The son of Judah and Tamar far surpasses Judah and Tamar in his ability to extend graciousness and equity. What is Matthew trying to show us by including Tamar in Jesus's genealogy? Well, you could sum it up like this. There is never a point of no return for those to whom God's grace breaks through. And that's what Christmas is about. Wherever you find yourself this morning, wherever you find yourself in the holiday season, which might bring up old memories that are painful, which might cause relational tension and friction, which might erupt into conflict and infighting and squabbling and bitterness. Wherever you find yourself, whether it's in the gutter of depression and darkness or in the heights of happiness and joy, Scripture wants you to hear that Christmas is the tale of God breaking through all of our darkness, all of our blindness, all of our attempts to justify ourselves and give to us his son. Jesus was not born so that we could simply sort of rejoice at him from afar. Jesus was born so that he could change us. Jesus was born so that we would experience the same breakthrough that his ancestors experienced by the same grace of the same God. So he calls you this morning through this story to receive him. Receive the breakthrough that he offers by his grace. That's what Christmas is for. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.